Hello everyone, and welcome to Shop Reverse Shop. I'm Matt Risby, hello, and joining me as always, via the miracle of satellite technology, it's the Duke of Burgundy, it's Ed Davis, how the devil are you sir? Good, yeah, feeling embarrassed that I haven't actually seen the Duke of Burgundy yet, so I can't make a reference to it, even though it's on US Netflix and I could have watched it at any time. Mm, do we know anything about the real Duke of Burgundy? He was probably a dick. Hmm. Generally, yeah, but... Duke's not the best. Yeah. Probably liked a red wine. Maybe. Um, that was it. Deep maroon colours. Not sure. Anyway, this waffle aside, uh, let's get into some news uh, this week. And something that's got you and I very excited, Ed, is Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials is coming to television. It was kind of attempted to have been adapted as a TV, as a, sorry, as a film a few years ago. Didn't go very well. Uh, very compromised production. And yeah, it's getting a second pop. Yeah, and like you say, the first one directed by one of the Whites is, I forget which, probably Chris. Uh, I'll go Chris, yeah. Yeah, uh, he, it seems like a Chris White sort of movie. Yeah, he, he adapted it, it didn't turn out particularly well, although there were some good casting choices, like uh, Eva Green was a great choice to play Serafina Picala, but that was about it. <laughs> Other than that, there weren't a lot of strong choices there, because they had to pretty much gut all of the transgressive stuff in it about religion and just turn it into a slightly generic, if well-mounted, fantasy. So the idea of it being done by the BBC, who, uh, on the back of Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell, which is a similarly kind of dense and uh, bold book that was turned into a really good and accessible TV show, uh, I've got very high hopes for what the BBC can do with some tricky source material. Mm. And Mr. Pullman is on board in some kind of producery capacity. Not really sure how hands-on he'll be, but I don't know whether it's because he's learned the lessons from last time. The BBC haven't announced when they're going to do it. They haven't announced who's going to do it. And they haven't announced how many kind of episodes they're going to break it down into, how long it's going to be. There was some speculation that it was going to be a three-parter every Christmas for the next three years. Uh, which would be pretty kind of bold and uh, forward-thinking. How would you like to see it done, Ed? I, I think that would be quite a fun way of doing it. That's kind of what they did with the uh, the other Philip Pullman books, where they made them and it starred Billy Piper. Those were pretty, those were pretty fun, and they did a couple of those at Christmas time for a few years. Um, but I think for me, the best way would be if it, they treated it like the way the BBC used to do the adaptation of like John Le Carre novels, where they would do them as full series every through every few years. So if it was every uh, every Christmas for three years, you got like a three or four parter. That'd be that'd be probably the best way of doing it. Although you then run into the problem of whether or not they'll be able to find space in the schedule for that around, you know, Sherlock and The Hobbit or whatever it is they start showing at Christmas now. Mm. Well, there'll be no room in the schedule for the Hobbits. It lasts about four weeks, so that's <laughs> most of the festive period taken up. I think that that seems like a, a pretty decent way to approach it. I think television will serve the material better than a film because those books are pretty kind of dense. There's a lot of characters, and you know they could probably do with some time to breathe. And also, in terms of the religious material, the BBC seems like a good place to put that because 
let's face it, the Church of England probably not going to cause that much of a stink about it, as opposed no. as opposed to when Hollywood tried it and they got so worried about the possible response of Christians that they defanged it and then Christians got mad at it anyway. So mm. <laughs> you might as well just go the full hog on the BBC and and see how it goes. Mm. Yeah. Down with this sort of thing, careful now, kind of signs outside the BBC, <laughs> held by Father Ted, I'd love to see. In other television news this week, another beloved television property, Star Trek, uh, has been announced that's going to come back for a new show, and everyone's kind of excited, but then people also slowly remembered that the last time it was on television, it wasn't particularly good. The last two times, really. I mean, Voyager had a good cast and a great captain, but wasn't really that strong when it came to storytelling and Enterprise wasn't particularly good from start to finish and also I believe one of the I think one of the guys who's behind the TV that the film versions is also going to be in charge of the the TV revival and it's one of the but those two writers are Orky and Kurtzman I think Kurtzman who Mm. are generally not very good at writing (laughs) Uh, based on the Based on their their track record, did they do a Transformers film? Yeah, they were the guys behind the Transformers. They basically their hit ratio is very very low. They basically got they seem to have got very lucky with the first Star Trek film, and then everything since then has not been so good. And and Fringe, but they they weren't the driving force behind Fringe. So yeah, him being involved doesn't instill confidence, and also the way in which CBS are reviving it, having it be available through their streaming service which is kind of bold and and makes for for cbs who generally are quite traditional and conservative but also kind of feels a little rinky dink for a franchise that is really you know iconic and has been a huge part of uh, pop culture for for a very long time Mm. is is there kind of i mean obviously the fans are there for it kind of the appeal of seeing it just tried again with a different crew or is it are they going to try and maybe weave some of the other stuff into it the other kind of generations it kind of seems to be quite popular in the show i mean i don't really know because i don't watch star trek because it's stupid <laughs> uh i think the the best way to do it in terms of maybe artistically would probably be to try and start anew with a new crew and just try and tell new stories but i think the allure of maybe getting patrick stewart back in you know, might for an episode or two might drive them down that route, which would be fine in and of itself, and but also would maybe contribute to the sense of it being just fan service. Mm. Anyway, like I say, I don't like Star Trek, so let's move on. John Stewart, he's someone I very much do like. He has been announced this this week that he is uh, signing over to HBO, which is exciting. But then, the kind of one of the more interesting aspects of the deal, which I think is a long term deal has him kind of producing nearly daily content for their digital streaming services, uh, HBO Go and HBO Now. Yeah, I think he's signed up for four years. And the it's interesting because the big story is obviously that he's, his retirement lasted like two months uh, and he's coming back in a, a different form. You know, he's now John Stewart the White. Uh, mm-hmm. And he is, you know, he's, he's returning in and doing something probably similar to what he was doing because it's something he was doing for 16 years so going back and doing topical political content seems like the smart move for him to do creatively and commercially but i think it'll be interesting to see what form that takes because if it is 
him just overseeing and guiding stuff rather than appearing in it all the time, then that probably maybe suits his his general direction in terms of you know him going and directing Rosewater or him seeming to get uh, ground down by the grind of just having to appear on TV every day. So if he's just producing stuff, that might make more sense for where he wants to go as an artist than than where he was uh, at the point that he decided to hang up the Daily Show. Mm. Are we are we to kind of uh, glean from this that his film directing days are over, or is he going to be afforded flexibility to to maybe leave and do something? I'm kind of off the back of this deal whenever he wants to. I think he will probably not do another film for a while. He seemed to be in a similar situation to Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Wait, yeah, that's the right names, isn't it? Mm, I think so. Yeah, I always get their first and last name mixed up, but I think it's Trey Parker and Matt Stone from South Park who who said that they, after doing Team America, that as as rewarding as the experience was, the sheer effort of it compared to their TV work means that they they basically will probably never do another film again. Mm. And I kind of get the feeling that John Stewart, you know, took time off from the day show and, and felt perhaps a little more rewarded in that he got to do this thing that he'd wanted to do for a while. But at the same time, it was kind of very time consuming and it wasn't hugely well received you know it was very respectfully received and did okay at the box office but that was about it mm-hmm. so it seems like the sort of thing where he he may like to do it but it may just have been a case where he got the got it out of his system mm, yeah it seems to be quite a privileged thing position to be in and kind of pick and choose what he wants and if you're going to go anywhere on television hbo it's probably a decent bet and it kind of excites me thinking that like they are going to be producing exclusive content for those those outlets because they are kind of launching worldwide aren't they next year yeah so it's obviously a huge platform for him and it'd be very exciting to see what he does if he's afforded a a platform that big and that global particularly uh in an election year because as the as i was often the case on the daily show the year leading up to election was the most exciting time for the work they could do so if he wants to continue in that vein of doing topical satire then you know he has plenty of fodder at the ready mm, yeah yeah they're making a sequel to the girl with the dragon tattoo the the david fincher one that came out a few years ago i very much enjoyed it it was very kind of moody although it kind of did run out of puff towards the end as uh, a lot of these kind of uh, mystery thrillers do but the kind of reason that it's newsworthy i guess is that they're going ahead with it without Rooney Mara, Daniel Craig, or David Fincher. I can't possibly see what could go wrong there. No, I mean, they're all kind of moderate talents, mm. easily replaceable. Yeah, it's it's very strange. It, it, pro, it seems to come from a place of tremendous frustration on the part of the studio because they've been trying to get a sequel off the ground for a long time, but it was hard to justify because the first film, I think just about broke even but wasn't the massive hit that they kind of needed it to be because it was hugely expensive and it the idea of them having air maybe less high profile names involved and also adapting the book that came out this year that wasn't written by Steve Larson uh, because he's entered that kind of Robert Robert Ludlum area of his career now where they just stick his name on things because he's dead and he can't write more Mm. Uh, I think that 
that suggests they're they're moving it more into kind of potboiler territory, which is probably the territory that it more comfortably uh, occupies than Finch's a little more rigorous and portentous version, which was the sort of thing where you watch and think this only this works for one film, but I'm not sure how you're going to be able to make this work for more than a single outing with this creative team. Mm, it would be quite a dispiriting trilogy to sit through. <laughs> yes, very much so. Uh, yeah, kind of fairly joyless, cold, kind of distant three films wouldn't be a great deal of fun. Been a big week for trailers, but it's probably the most notable one is the trailer for World of Warcraft, which everyone is hoping will break the video games not making very good films hoodoo, which, you know, there's a reason why they don't make good films. But like Duncan Jones is behind he's made some good stuff. I mean he's behind it, but the trailer doesn't have you know, particularly exciting things in store for me. I I'm kind of very tired of high fantasy. I don't really like that kind of setting. And this this kind of doesn't seem to be anything new. Yeah, and other than it looking quite nice in terms of the effects, there's not a huge amount in the story that's that interesting. Um, Maybe if you play World of Warcraft, it is, but I never have. My my closest association to it is that South Park episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's, that's about it. That's my connection to World of Warcraft. And what I see in it, it does look painfully generic in terms of high fantasy stories and as as nice as it looks and as as cool as it is to hear clancy brown's voice coming from a a giant green orc Mm -hmm. that's not quite enough to make you pay kind of imax prices to go and see it in the cinema yeah yeah like story-wise is romeo and juliet really the nearest thing they could come up with the best the best idea of kind of like making it more accessible and I was watching the trailer and I thought you could literally lift any one of these shots and slip it into a Lord of the Rings film the way it's kind of framed and the way that the the, uh, the kind of money shots are designed and you probably won't be able to tell the difference it kind of goes a long way of what we were saying in the episode we did about The Hobbit about the Lord of the Ringsy vacation if that's a, a word of kind of fantasy and kind of action cinema and the aesthetic and everything is just it's kind of hard to shape that and it also has the problem that a lot of video game adaptations have, which is that you know video games are fun to play because they're interactive and they're not that interesting in the story. The stories tend to be very banal and just kind of very rote and just there to get the character, the player to engage in interacting with the world. And what I see of that, it reminds me a lot of some of Uwe Boll's kind of dabblings in it particularly his oh what they called the ones that he did with jason statham which are like uh, like in the name of the king in the name of the stuff. king yeah yeah, yeah. Um, in the name of the king it it, ha- it has that same quality to it it right down to the kind of mid-tier actors showing up in bit parts it's like you know they didn't get burt reynolds to play the king they cut dominic cooper very much the modern day burt reynolds um <laughs> to, to cut it and it, it is that kind that has the exact same feel to it to me it's just that the production values are a little higher than having jason statham kind of running jump kick someone through a wood in you know poland somewhere do you think that it will break the the hex uh we've got that and we've got the assassin's creed movie coming next year do we think that there's a chance we might get a good film kind of adapted from a video game i i would think assassin's creed has a better chance of it just because the story's a little more interesting but and I do like the idea of the guy from Snowtown 
doing a adaptation of Assassin's Creed with the same cast pretty much that he did Macbeth. Uh, there's something about that combination that I find quite interesting and weird, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure that War, uh, Warcraft can do it, even though I do like Duncan Jones's work and I liked his first two films, and I'm excited to see if he can do it. I I I look at that trailer and I think you've got to have be holding back some pretty amazing stuff for this to be a good film because mm. <laughs> what you're showing so far isn't, isn't that promising. And uh, lastly, we're going to talk about another trailer, one that we are um, slightly more excited about. It's the trailer for Preacher, AMC's adaptation of the long thought of unadaptable comic. How did you? Uh, how did you find it? I, I thought it was interesting. I mean, it's, Preacher is an insane story. You know, it goes off into some very weird places, in kind of a lot of touching on similar themes to uh, his Dark Materials in uh, thinking about it but it and, and not much of that is contained in the trailer so it's hard to tell how faithful they've been in terms of taking that stuff in there and you don't see like the saints of killers isn't included in there and he's obviously kind of a big part of that and a, and a big iconic character but what little is there is quite moody and quite atmospheric and very amc so it, it certainly entices me by just throwing up a bunch of interesting images and some hard-boiled dialogue but it it doesn't sell me on it in the way that say the trailer for the walking dead uh kind of sold me on that show for the three episodes that i watched of it <laughs> mm. it kind of skirts around the supernatural elements of it as well yeah it just makes it look as if it's going to be about a priest who beats people up which that is that is a a minor part of what preacher involves anticipation for that ed still pretty high based on the fact that you know that those comics are a lot of fun and i am i'm just interested in seeing how it how it translates and also joe gilgan looks perfect in it and he has kind of a fun line at the end in a very big irish accent saying what kind of priest are you Mm. just kind of nails that that kind of cheeky irish vampire thing so i'm 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 interested but not quite excited Mm. I have to say I am too. I didn't really read a whole bunch of the comics, and I started in a weird place that I kind of I, I got a comic out of my local library which was just about the Saint of Killers, and mm. Preacher wasn't even in it at all. I didn't really understand what was going on. Then I read a few other editions of it and kind of struggled to kind of work my way through it. But I, th- I think I would kind of fare well with the uh, fare better with the uh, the TV show of it, and it kind of looked okay. But yeah, I'm not. I don't know if they were holding a lot back because it's like a bit harder edged. I know that Rogan, Seth Rogan, and Evan Goldberg are behind it. I don't know if it was a bit more kind of potty mouthed and there's not really a great deal they could show on or what. I'm not really sure. It does strike me as even if it's not just language, I think in terms of violence, in terms of a trailer that hints at things, it hints at a lot of interesting stuff, but not in a way that's necessarily that exciting in and of itself. Mm. It's more suggestive of potentially good things than containing potentially good things. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll find out. When, when's that coming, is that? Uh, I think it's in February of next year. It's early next year. Right, okay. Well, we can pass judgment on on it then. This week's episode, we're going to be talking about spies. Why are we talking about spies, Ed? Because the latest instalment in the fairly popular and sort of long-running James Bond series of pictures. 
mm-hmm. has uh, has opened in the states. And neither of us have seen it, so we'll kind of skirt over that uh, <laughs> that piece of important detail. We were both supposed to see it this week, and uh, neither of us managed it. But we're gonna. It's been a kind of a weird year for for spy films and spy properties. It's what well, you could say a banner year for them. Uh, we've had Bond. Uh, we've had another uh, instalment of the hugely successful Mission Impossible franchise. We've also had uh, uh, riffing on spy movies with stuff like Kingsman, the Paul Feig film Spy. We also had Bridge of Spies. Uh, we also had a Spooks movie, which I didn't think would ever happen. Which is, I noticed it's been rebranded MI5 in America. Is that is the whole show like branded that, or is it just the film? Uh, yeah, it's always been known as MI5 over here. Uh, okay, okay, but yeah. So, like, why the abundance of of spy stuff? I mean, I mean, I've got a theory. I put it to you yesterday in, in the WhatsApp uh, discussion group that we have about these episodes that. It's maybe because relations with Russia are, are kind of starting to get a little frosty again, and uh, maybe we're getting a kind of a Cold War vibe, and we're 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 kind of producing more spy stuff to reflect that. I mean, there's absolutely no evidence to back that up, <laughs> but I'm prepared to stand by it as a theory. Well, I think the biggest piece of evidence in favour of it would probably be the fact that we got a Man from Uncle movie this year. Oh shit! Yeah, I forgot about that one. Yeah, well, everyone did, but um, that that strikes me as the sort of film that would not that that people have been struggling to make for a very long time has kind of gone through dozens of different directors and different iterations in the last couple of decades, and really probably should have been made in the nineties when people were adapting all these old spy shows or old like you know when they made the Avengers movie and the Saint movie and stuff like that, but got made now i think because there is something in the culture of you know russia is after years of being sort of rehabilitated but also sort of mistrusted they are now firmly in the camp of being kind of a dangerous force in the world uh maybe one who's de- whose power is overstated a lot but still someone who pres- prov- uh, provides a very clear force of of malevolence in the world and I think that that probably plays plays a big part in it. Mm. Plus, as well, like can't pick China for the baddies because they, it's a big market, you know. Yeah, you're gonna have to recast all of your characters as Koreans, as, mm. as happened with uh, Red Dawn, the point two point oh. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was a kind of a peculiar episode. But you can't kind of go for the North Koreans now because James Franco's ruined all that, hasn't he? <laughs> Yeah, we're we're current. We're about the year anniversary of them nearly bringing the world to some kind of weird, undefined calamity. <laughs> I think I think when that actually happened at the time, we talked about it as as perhaps a kind of a flashpoint in human history that we would kind of one day look back on and think, "What well, what was that all about?" And uh, yeah, here we are. Um, what was all that about? Like there was very nearly shots fired. Uh, yeah, over a, a really dreadful film. Yeah, it's. Very, very bizarre and weird, and especially when the film actually did come out and it was there was no big fuss about it. Like mm. people watched it out of a sense of wanting to show that they weren't scared, and I think everyone walked away really disappointed by that decision. Yeah, it was pulled from cinemas. That's fucking insane. I, I like, I, yeah, our kids won't believe us. Ed, it's peculiar, <laughs> but yeah, we have got a kind of a glut of uh, spy films, and we've got Born coming back. What is it about spy films that kind of endures? Is it is it at its heart an adolescent male fantasy? 
I think that is a part, a, a big reason why the strain of films that includes Bond and Mission Impossible and also gave us, you know, the, the success of Kingsman and Spy. I think that's why those films continue. Uh, I think the idea of these kind of sexy globe trotting adventures, uh, often driven by male leads, although not always, but primarily driven by male leads, and they have a, a certain degree of glamour to them that is very appealing and attractive. And I think that that is a big part of it. But also, but I think if you look at historically at the history of spy movies, which goes all the way back to World War I, uh, you see the earliest examples. And then in the 20s with some films like uh, Fritz Lang's Spies and uh, in the 30s with Alfred Hitchcock making just a slew of spy movies like The 39 Step and no, no, Notorious. Uh, you know, he has that you often see that these films come out of a sense of unease as well, a, a sense that there is some great conflict happening and they are able to turn people's suspicions about other countries, other regimes, and transform their concerns into popcorn entertainment in a lot of ways. Mm, yeah, and popcorn entertainment they are. I mean, they don't come kind of any more popcornier than than Bonds. And at what are we at number twenty four now? Twenty five? I I think it's number twenty four. Yes. Yeah. Well, what's what's the big idea behind uh, James Bond's enduring appeal? Because, you know, as a person, he hasn't really developed much, he hasn't grown. It, he strikes me as and uh, as kind of similar to the appeal of Indiana Jones, and uh, for fear of repeating the uh, stuff from the Red Letter Media video about Kingdom of the Crystal Dull Skull, uh, Indiana Jones is basically a cipher. He's not really a character. He doesn't really develop much over those films. He's just kind of an immensely cool, impossible figure that people can they don't relate to, but they kind of aspire to. Mm. Like, you look at him and he's a sexy, world-travelling archaeologist who fights Nazis, you know. And in the case of Bond, he's a sexy, globe-trotting spy who saves the world on a regular basis. Although not not so much Daniel Craig's version. He still gets to travel, travel the world and shag lots of beautiful women. So, mm, Well, especially in Skyfall, he shags one of them in the shower minutes after she tells him she was a child prostitute. Uh, which, that's just so insensitive. Yeah, the sexual politics of the Bond films have not really progressed all that much from the 60s. The only difference is every so often now they'll have someone point out how they haven't progressed, Mm. which is not the same as solving a problem. No, if you point it out and don't know anything about it, just just, laugh about it and and, carry on regardless. I mean, isn't there that kind of... um... That thing where they say like madness is is doing the same thing over and over again, accepting expecting the same results. Uh, yeah, yeah that's it. well. Why would he ever believe he's mad when he's essentially just acting like a sociopath and uh, just doing the same thing over and over again, just with someone making a joke about it every three films? Yeah, exactly. And he is as a character, he doesn't change at all. You know, physically he changes. Obviously, he's, he's been embodied by six different actors at this point. Seem to be seven because it, it does not look like there's enough money in Christendom to get James uh, Daniel Craig to sign up again. But yeah, he's he's basically more or less the same as he has been since the 60s. But that kind of blank slate quality is what makes, I think is why he has endured, is that the character doesn't have to change. You just put him into new situations. He kills people, throws out a few quips, and then, you know, there's a big explosion filled battle at the end and then you know that's it kind of has these things that are enduring 
throughout the last 50 years of pop culture that it can just keep falling back on each time to mm. kind of greater or lesser success. Do you think that like James Bond used to represent a certain type of Britishness, kind of in a baffling sense, in people you think about, you know, him and the Aston Martin and, and kind of all that kind of iconic stuff? Um, do you think it's kind of moving away from that as it attempts to appeal to more and more markets and, and be kind of diluted into something that's perhaps a bit more kind of global? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I don't feel that Daniel Craig is an especially British Bond. Obviously, he is British, and he's obviously more British than, for example, George Lazenby's Bond was. Mm. He wasn't even a bit British. He was Australian. Yeah. So he he's, other than the fact that he is British, I don't feel like he embodies much in the way of British values, except, you know, kind of being very begrudging in doing his mm. job, mm. which is something I certainly associate with Britishness. Um you know, I think a lot of the stuff that you kind of point to as being representative of, of his Britishness now, which is just kind of following a sense of duty and serving king and country, those are all just kind of lip service sort of things. It does feel more that he's going to a uh, slightly generic internationalism, which is fine, really, because I think it would be weird to try and assert that Britain is as kind of dominant world power as it was even 50 years ago. But it does. I think it does lose some of the distinctiveness as a character in doing that. Mm-hmm. There was a big moment in Bond, and although we just kind of made it light of the fact that he is told he's a misogynist, but it just kind of carries on anyway. But when Pierce Brosnan came into the role uh, after Timothy Dalton, who was, you know, many people think he was the best Bond. I certainly think he had dark quality to to him, but uh, he kind of didn't stay around and. and Bond dropped off for a little bit, but when he came back in Goldeneye, uh, it was a very pointed speech between him and Judy Dench about how he was a kind of a dinosaur and a relic. And I think we saw a kind of kick into there was kind of maybe two two kind of bonds, the kind of pre uh, Pierce Brosnan and the kind of post Brosnan, in that they're kind of the modern bonds, as it were, with were a bit more knowing and a bit more kind of serious, I guess. Do you think that now we live in a world that's Sterling Archer inhabits and that, uh, you know, is being parodied beyond Austin Powers? Um, that, like, when we see the next iteration of Bond, uh, we'll kind of leap forward again? Or do you think we'll see more of the same, just a different face? Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that that's why the Daniel Craig Bonds had to happen is that the Pierce Brosnan ones were by the end, way too campy. They were not quite Roger Moore level, but it wasn't that far off in terms of just throwing out silly lines and, you know, just being this bizarre comic creation. And I think that having Bond suddenly become super serious again was a corrective to that, which more or less worked in kind of rescuing it from the the world of parody and allows it to exist separately from the thing that Archer is kind of parodying. Mm. Um, it was a very interesting um, thing that within an interview that Daniel Craig did before this one came out. And he said that, you know, the reason that there's less humour and, and less gadgets and stuff in these films is purely down to to Austin Powers, but also the fact that it's a bit more hard-hitting and action-packed is purely down to Bourne, mm. which is you know very interesting that 
whereas before Bond used to shape the kind of the cinema of you know the action cinema landscape now is very much being molded by other forces. I think that Bond has been quite a reactive franchise for a while because obviously the the, the early Connery ones were pretty iconic and definitive and really defined what people's image of a spy movie was and that's why you get stuff like the Chris Files and John the Carré's fiction coming up as a response to it of basically saying yeah no that's bullshit <laughs> none of that stuff is real you know this is what being a spy is like being a spy is boring and horrible I think that but then you get into like the Roger Moore era and you see Live and Let Die is basically a black exploitation film that happens to star James Bond. Moonraker is a clear direct response to Star Wars. It's something. It's a series that has always... Or, or when you go to Timothy Dalton in the 80s, License to Kill is basically like a lethal weapon movie without mm. without without someone for him to really kind of bounce off of. It's a, a hard-hitting 80s action movie about cocaine. It really doesn't have much to do with James Bond other than the fact he's the star. Um, and then, like, the the Bond film is just kind of the ultimate... The, the, uh, the, the Daniel Craig version is kind of the ultimate expression of that responsiveness in that they just looked at what was working, which was, you know, the Bourne films. And, and it was interesting that the first Bourne movie came out the same year that the last Pierce Brosnan movie did. And it really was that stark of a divide of being like, oh, no, this is what people want from their spy movies now, not invisible cars and shit. They want, they want someone driving a mini downstairs in Paris. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've always wanted to see that. Uh, there was someone who said the other day, and I couldn't kind of remember who it was, so I apologise. But the, the kind of Roger Moore bonds are so kind of daft by comparison to how serious it is now that someone said, if you watch View to a Kill with the idea that he is an old man who just thinks he's a spy <laughs> and, and follow the plot, it's almost perfect. That because he, he, he kind of gains entry to that party kind of by giving the fake name. And you think, well, he, he could just be some guy who's really confused. <laughs> he just kind of stumbles into that venture. View to a Kill is genuinely one of the worst films I think I've ever seen. But I, that's the Bond film I've seen the most times because uh, I had it on video as a kid. And I watched it over and over again. And it's kind of incredibly funny that there was a, a sex scene between Grace Jones and Roger Moore <laughs> that... Um, audience test audiences demanded was cut because no one wants to see roger moore having sex with grace jones yeah i i always thought that that was such a weird there's, there's so much weirdness going on in that film in terms of the casting like grace jones who is like pretty enjoyable in the film but her being paired off with christopher walken who is about as unbond like a villain as you can find um, but then also have him also be a super soldier. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that that's like completely bizarre the way that the Bond series went in the eighties. Yeah, in terms of modern spy movies, also I was I thought it was interesting kind of looking at examples of recent Bond uh, recent spy movies. I thought it was very weird that there are so few examples of films of spy movies made now that are actually set during our current or involve our current kind of efforts against terrorism. Like most of the contemporary spy movies you see either take place in the past, like Bridge of Spies, obviously, or something like uh, to go get away from Hollywood, something like The Lives of Others, or they 
are set in that kind of heightened, crazy uh, action fantasy world of Mission Impossible and and Bond. I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on why exactly no one seems to be trying to make films about what spying actually involves now, considering that that was a kind of a strain of spy movies that always existed and, you know, was particularly prevalent in the 60s, but you see it running all the way through until the end of the Cold War. Mm. I I think you touched on it earlier by the fact that I think audiences now would demand a little bit more realism, but the realism of being a spy is that it's fucking boring. Uh, I went to university with a girl and her dad was a spy, worked for MI5, very dull, a lot of travel, a lot of not really doing anything that exciting. But then also I think there's the fact that the current situation, the so-called war on terror, that kind of thing is like really grim and really kind of upsetting. And I think the the, the appetite to see kind of adventures set in that um in that kind of milieu is probably not quite as high as it was in the kind of Cold War era where there was a little bit more kind of mystery to it and there was a little bit more of fear of the unknown rather than, you know, our enemy has a Twitter feed and posts pictures of them cutting our kind of people's heads off. And I think that's that's probably where the kind of the horror is a bit too real, I feel. And also, it probably doesn't help that the situation is bewildering beyond belief. Mm. And I think I think that may also explain why you see a lot of films, of spy films that are successful being set either in the Cold War, like Bridge of Spies, which is doing pretty well currently in the US, or something like Bond or, or Mission Impossible, where they're fighting shadowy organisations, but they're also shadowy organisations that are pretty easily understood mm-hmm. they're not these weird collections of cells that don't know all of who everyone is and that are kind of really segmented and almost impossible to track down and or, or if you do track them down it's mainly through just following bank details uh-huh. you know which is not the most cinematic of things to watch um you know there's not a lot of opportunity there for high-flying adventures so it really feels as if the situation is so bewildering that if you want to tell a spy story and you want people to see it, you have to boil it down to kind of very basic ideas of good and evil. And, and I think it's interesting that the only example I could find, uh, examples I could find of, of these uh, kind of contemporary set spy movies were Zero Dark Thirty, which is obviously based on a real thing that is fairly easy to follow because it's just about the hunt for one man. And everyone knows how it ends. So it's like, it's fairly easy to build complexity into it when people know, okay, at a certain point, they're going to attack a compound in Pakistan and the film, uh, A Most Wanted Man, which I had to try very hard not to say A Most Serious Man, because that's not a film, Mm. um, which is uh, a really, really great spy movie set in Hamburg, which is very kind of detail orientated and about the uh, efforts of a group of, of of a small intelligence unit to try and determine if a, a man who has just recently arrived in the city is involved with the terrorist unit or not. Uh, and I thought it was interesting that that's written by John Le Carre, who pretty much is the last man standing in terms of trying to make, in providing books that people turn into kind of really detail-orientated and realistic depictions of espionage. Mm. I think... One of the the reasons as well that you might not see a lot of modern spy films set now in the current political climate is 
it's going to be quite hard to predict where people's sympathies are going to lie when you're kind of what, making uh, a Cold War spy movie in America in the, the 60s or whatever, everyone's going to be on the side of of America. But, you know, Zero Dark Thirty was quite a divisive film. No one was really watching it as a kind of a triumphant, we got him type release. And a lot of people had a lot of problems with, you know, they were kind of, well, hang on, America are kind of the baddies in this. Yeah, or, or at least the methods were so divisive in that it was possible for people to read it as either a pro-torch or an anti-torture film, more or less depending on where you came into the film thinking it was going to be, mm. uh, which obviously was what fueled the backlash to it and for a lot of people think would cost it pretty much all of its Oscars. Yeah, but do you think that maybe that's a reason as well, is that like people are a little bit more clued up as to what being a spy involves these days. So, like, in the olden days, it would be perhaps, oh, yeah, he's kind of wearing a fake moustache and he's got a gun, whereas now it's just like, oh, God, he's waterboarding some Arabs somewhere who didn't do anything. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to kind of compare that to Bridge of Spies, which is a film set in that very kind of clear world of good versus evil but has a very sympathetic portrayal of a Soviet spy and the character played by Mark Rylance, who is depicted essentially just as a man trying to do his job and it doesn't really portray him as you know in any way sinister other than the fact that he was you know spying so obviously there is something slightly sinister about him but he's portrayed as someone who is actually quite principled you know he it's not a principle that the tom hanks character shares but he appreciates that he's a man of honor and a man of his word and i think that it's it's interesting that you can have that sort of complexity in a film set in the past because it's also even though you're portraying this guy as essentially a decent man who's on the opposite side of an ideological divide the film also takes great lengths to say but yeah the soviets and their allies did horrendous things as well Mm. Uh, so you can be that you can add those shades of complexity to a story that has long been resolved but if you try and do it to one now uh, you run the risk of alienating everyone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. With Bourne coming back next year and with notably Matt Damon returning to fill the lead as opposed to Jeremy Renner, who we had last time out, what are the future for the kind of those three big spy franchises, Bond, Mission Impossible and, and Bourne? Because they're kind of all at a weird point, whereas... You know, Bond is, is going to get a new Bond. Bourne has got the old Bourne coming back. And Mission Impossible has got a star who, you know, hasn't got that many more left in him. It it does feel as if Mission Impossible is either going to have to end, mm-hmm. either by having Ethan Hunt die or retire or whatever, or and or, or evolve in the sense that he does what the, the Indiana Jones series seemed to try to do with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which was hand the reins over to a younger man and which uh the the mission impossible films seem to be hinting at doing in ghost protocol where they brought in the aforementioned jeremy renner who seemed to be being groomed as a replacement but then in the fifth one it's actually kind of doing a desk job (laughs) i think that for that one the most logical thing is either it ends or they choose a kind of a designated star to take over it and to be the lead in future installments and maybe Ethan Hunt shows up to give them missions or something uh, or or it, or it ends completely and they just mothball it and they reboot it in a couple of years time uh, with Bourne 
I think it demonstrated that it only really works with Matt Damon in the lead. And so that one, as as soon as he decides that he doesn't want to do them anymore, that one is another one. They'll just have to completely kill it off and then just reboot it at some point, assuming people still care. Mm. Uh, um, and Bo- Bond will just keep trucking along with different actors and responding to whatever the trends are. Mm. It's interesting that Matt Damon's back in Bourne, but then also Paul Greengrass is back. Yeah, I think that was conditional. I think that was the only way they were going to get Matt Damon back, even though Paul Greengrass is... Uh, I think he left He and they more or less didn't want him to come back to the series because... Similarly to Sam Raimi in the Spider-Man movies, his approach to filmmaking was a little too chaotic and expensive. Mm. But I think they looked at how kind of mediocre the receipts were for the uh, the Bourne whatever it was. Bourne, <laughs> uh, the Bourne Renner. What was uh, it called, man? Legacy. Like, Leg Bourne Legacy. That's right. Uh, yeah, the Bourne Legacy, and said, "Yeah, this people are only going to care if we have Matt Damon in this." And so if we want if we want to kind of make any money from what should be a very lucrative name, we need to get the guy who made it a lucrative name back. Mm, yeah, I think the only real solution for Bond is to have Jeremy Renner play Bond because then he could <laughs> just span all three franchises. Yeah, he is. He is missing that on his dance card, isn't he? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm not really sure. Kind of like why this year has been a particularly big year for, for the spy genre and, you know, like whether next year we'll kind of see a continuation of that. I think we've got at least one more Jean Le Carré spy adaptation coming either this year or early next year in the form of Arkane kind of traitor. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I find very weird about it is that we started off this year of multiple spy movies with two comedies about spies. Mm. And it seems really weird because you would expect to see like two comedies about spies coming out maybe a year or two after a year that would be inundated with spy movies. But it just so happened that Spy and Kingsman both came out before the deluge had actually happened. And it seems it's almost like answering a question that hasn't been asked yet. Mm. Wait, was Kingsman a comedy? Nominally, it was a comedy. Holy shit. I know we're kind I mean, of it was getting... a crime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was pretty fucking horrible, Kingsman. It's going to depress me because it's going to appear on quite a few end of best lists. I think Uh, there's a lot of kind of people and kind of trustworthy people as well who are kind of saying it's amazing. Um, But I'm pretty sure they didn't see the same film that I did. Yeah, I found it to be a really dispiriting watch, Uh, really disheartening, and reaffirmed my long held belief that. Matthew Vaughan is not someone I would like <laughs> in, in in real life, uh, yeah. and whose whose uh, whose work I have liked less with each su- successive film, which is a an impressive kind of development for an artist. Because mm. usually you have ups and downs, but his is really like, oh yeah, I liked Layer Cake, Stardust was good, and then everything since then is like, woof, just got his plumbing new depth of it with each instalment. Mm, yeah, absolutely. What what a kind of ringing endorsement of that of a uh, director's career. We're big fans of Archer, and where do you think that's going to go? I am shamelessly just talking about Archer at this point um, because I like it so much. Um, <laughs> but the end of this last series, which is a very strong one, the ISIS, formerly the artist, formerly known as ISIS, found themselves kind of without employment again through various kind of means and a riff on the film Inner Space. 
uh, led to a disastrously bloody conclusion to this season. Where Where's that going? Well, I think Adam Reed, the creator, has said that he wants to keep going. He could keep going for 10 seasons. Right. Which uh, I'd be perfectly happy to see. I think they'll... they'll I don't really want to see them do another Arch of Vice because I liked the the change of setting once, mm. but it kind of lost something when it wasn't based in the world of, of kind of incompetent spies. So I would like to see them continue with the spying thing, but maybe as a, uh, a more rough and tumble uh, rogue operation than they already were. And they were pretty rough and tumble to begin with. Mm. It is an interesting kind of uh, idea that kind of ties my shameless mentioning of Archer back into what we were talking about. You, there's got to be a reason that Archer is a is a TV show about spies that's set now, but all its technology and all its kind of stylistic flourishes and everything are from the 60s. It definitely feels as if they're taking from what was the height of the spy genre. In that the 60s was the time when the two strands of it, which is the the, the Bond-style uh, travelogues, were at their peak, and all of the various derivatives, but you also had stuff like the Matt Helm series with uh, Dean Martin, which was the kind of direct inspiration for the look of Austin Powers. And you also you know, have your uh, spies who came in from the cold and whatnot. Uh, I think that it's obviously rooted there, because that is maybe the the pinnacle of the spy genre and it kind of has to be set there but obviously it's made by people with an incredibly modern sensibility so and it's a lot easier to make jokes about things that are happening now than it would be to you know actually research jokes that would be uh period appropriate Mm, mm. it's very deliberate to kind of set up that kind of cold war scenario even though they make kind of thoroughly modern references to things that are happening right now and have you know, modern technology, but also, you know, 60s or kind of 80s computers and stuff like that. And it's a very interesting choice. And it's trying to kind of kind of spark people's Pavlovian response to spy things. Um, plus also kind of get a lot of madmen and imagery in there. And also, I think it probably helped. It probably draws upon just what the creator's image of, of that culture from that time is. And that's why you also get things like going up to space stations or going to these kind of secret deep underground uh, aquatic complexes and things like that. These are all very much images you associate with that kind of very high, uh, not high fantasy, but, you know, those kind of very fantastical images of what spies in, spying involves, which is, mm. you know, these kind of deep sea labs and things like that. Yeah, and it's interesting that, like, Bond can still exist in a world where Archer has kind of made like such ludicrous light of the sexual politics actually makes you know some of the stuff that the old bond did actually makes archer look kind of fairly timid <laughs> yeah yeah there's uh he's not run across any gators heads as archer but they wouldn't be out of uh it wouldn't be out of character for him to do so dude have you ever seen the outtakes on youtube of of the stuntman doing that i have it's crazy it's fucking nuts because i just always assumed oh yeah you know, just careful editing. and Because why would you run across crocodile heads? That's fucking stupid. Yeah, but wh- why would you do it multiple times? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And fall over while doing it. <laughs> it's mm. fucking crazy. I know you and I have talked quite a lot about, you know, CGI and the kind of killing off stuntmen. 
I reckon that dude was probably quite pleased. He didn't have to run across any more crocodile heads again. Yeah, I think I also feel that um, from the same film, I believe, I think it's also from Live and Let Die, the stunt with the car that goes over the broken bridge and mm-hmm. spins midair and then lands on the other side, uh, which is one of the most amazing stunts in cinema because it's just a single shot of this car doing this incredible thing, uh, which you could only really do once because or once or twice before you maybe lose your nerve. And I imagine that the stuntmen after they realized they've got it were probably very pleased and then really annoyed when they stuck a slide whistle over it, mm. just <laughs> undermining what is an amazing bit of physical stunt work. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's spies and general subterfuge covered off there in this week's episode. Let's get into recommends this week. Uh, what have you got, Ed? Uh, I'm going to recommend a Netflix series which started just this Friday gone. It's the show Master of None, created by Aziz Ansari and Alan Yang, who was a writer on Parks and Recreation. It is a comedy about a man named uh, Dev who lives in New York and is a kind of struggling actor who hangs around with a bunch of friends, which includes Eric Wareheim. And there is probably no greater single comic image of the modern era than Aziz Ansari standing next to Eric Wareheim, who is a kind of mountain of a man, <laughs> justifies shooting it in widescreen because mm. it's the only way you're going to get both of them in shot at the same time. But it's an incredibly funny, very smart show that plays with form a lot. There's a, a, a sequence at the beginning of the second episode where Aziz is shown having a conversation with his dad and as he's talking it becomes this really elaborate flashback showing his dad's entire life basically up until that moment or the the key points of his journey coming to New York and having a kid and then at the same time Aziz's friend uh, Brian is having a who is a a kind of Chinese American or, or Taiwanese American is talking to his father and in their conversation his dad flashes back for his entire life and it's just this kind of very not especially funny but very ambitious way to open a show by just showing the parallel stories of these two guys lives and then using it as a jumping off point to explore how first generation uh americans and the children of immigrants relate to their parents there's a great episode probably my favorite episode of television of this year the fourth episode called indians on tv which is which is sparked off by, of all things, the fact that Fisher Stevens plays an Indian character in Short Circuit 2 <laughs> uh, and becomes about, you know, the, the question of if you're an actor and you, you're asked to portray Indians and you're constantly being jobs as, like, store clerks or taxi drivers and being asked to do ac- accents and how you navigate the world, a, a kind of a white-dominated culture as a minority. Uh, and it's just a very intelligently made, really funny and just kind of marvellous show that I'm glad exists uh, and I'm glad that Netflix exists to give someone like Aziz Ansari a voice in a way that he probably wouldn't be able to get as big a star as he is, you know, having sold out Madison Square Garden. He probably wouldn't get that on a traditional network. Mm, mm. It's been a big year for Netflix and their kind of comedy stuff. Uh, I'm going to recommend something a bit convoluted this week. In the uh, last night, I ended up watching Tremors, which I'm not going to recommend because we've already kind of sucked that film's dick quite a lot on uh, various episodes, including The Alternate 100. But it's one of my wife's favourite films, and uh, invariably, if it's on the television, which often is, ITV4, most weekends, we end up kind of watching it through, and it kind of jogged my memory about a film called Grabbers, 
which I heartily recommend everyone watch because it's on all Netflixes, on all regions. If you don't know what Grabbers is, it's kind of like a loose remake, I guess, of Tremors that's set in a kind of a small Irish coastal town. It has the same kind of tone as, as Tremors and it has a kind of like a, a similar kind of approach to doing really good action but kind of mixing it with comedy as Tremors does. Well, it, what it kind of has over Tremors is the fact that it's got the ingenious hook that uh, the monsters that are killing people in this small coastal Irish town cannot tolerate alcohol. So for most of the film, all of the people in order to survive have to be blind drunk, which <laughs> adds a brilliant layer of comedy to the film, and I highly recommend it. Um, and have you seen it, Ed? I have not. I've heard nothing but good things from people who mention it, though, so I, I will endeavour to track it down. Yeah, please do. It is on it is on all the Netflixes, so get that in your face. If if Tremors isn't on, then you know, go for the next best thing. So yeah, that's recommends for this week. This is the end of the show. So I'll kind of direct everyone to our iTunes and our Stitcher and our Player FM feed, and also our website, which is uh, srspodcast.podbean.com. We will endeavour to get a shorter kind of URL for that in the future I promise because I'm getting pretty tired of saying it we're on Twitter we're on Facebook and if you've enjoyed the show please subscribe to us and find us on those things we'll be back next week with an artist profile I believe which should be a lot of fun until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me <laughs> <laughs>